All right, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Not a long passage of Scripture today, and in, in some ways I don't have all that much to say about them. I hope that our time together today will be pointed and be direct as it relates to a burden that's been on my heart and a burden which I believe the Scriptures uh, reflect well in this passage. First Timothy is a letter about ministry and a letter about the church. Not only have we seen in First Timothy wonderful prescriptions as it relates to uh, the qualifications of a minister, the burdens of a minister, the dangers of the ministry, the opportunities of the ministry, the privileges of the ministry, but it has also shown us various elements about how the church is to be structured and how it is to operate. As we saw the call for men to be praying everywhere, uh, for all men, for kings and for those in authority, particularly. And so we see that call, we see that exhortation. As for women, that they would clothe themselves, adorn themselves in submission through modest apparel, through shamefacedness, uh, that, that they would uh, um, um, reflect that submission in the assembly, that the people of God would choose out from among themselves approved leaders, men who uh, reflect not hyperpiety, not that these men are super Christians, not that they're supposed to be more than other Christians, but that all of the things that God expects of a Christian, they do well. They're good examples with the unique qualification of being apt to teach as it relates to the bishops, which is something that draws directly upon the calling and the gifting of ministry. As we saw last week, the exhortation that the elders had given to Timothy by the laying on of hands as they charged him to war a good warfare. As we went to 2 Timothy and we saw that exhortation that Timothy would, would uh, not have the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind unto the exhortation, unto the, the, the operation of his ministry, even unto suffering of reproach for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see these ideas, and they're not just about ministers. They're about the church. They're about we as Christians. And today we see this again. We see a, a picture of Paul's exhortation to Timothy, and then Timothy, not uh, about how Timothy as a minister ought to relate himself to the people in the church. And then by extension how the church ought to relate itself one to another. And if we were to summarize this simply, the, the simple summary of this relationship would be the word family. We see any number of three in particular pictures of the church throughout the word of God. One of the pictures that we see of the church, the one that we perhaps use most regularly, is the picture of a body, Right? The picture of, of, a, of a human body and the fact that we are, we are many different members. We have eyes and we have ears and we have a mouth and, and we have feet and we have kneecaps and we have fingers and we have fingernails and we have the outer ear and we have the inner ear and we have all of these parts working individually and yet working together. If one part is damaged, it doesn't just damage itself. The whole body is affected. If my knee is hurting my knee gets damaged, my knee hurts, but my whole body is going to be affected. I'm going to walk differently. That might make my back hurt. That might make my feet hurt. I'm going to uh, need to use my healthy knee to compensate 
for my bad knee, which means my healthy knee is going to get tired and it's going it, it's to be taking extra pressure. And then even the element of pain itself has an emotional toll and a physical toll on my body. Just the idea of being in pain, resisting pain, exhausts the body, right? And can fundamentally change how I think, how I operate, uh, every element of me, my attitude, my disposition, my outlook. And so we see that element of the body and the, the idea that as we function together by the, 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 the strength that every joint supplies, we are brought into a singular body. The second picture that we see in Scripture is that of a building, right? That it is a building that is founded upon the Word of God. We see that one in Ephesians. And it's founded upon the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. And then the church is built up upon that foundation. And we are to be built up into a stable and a, a functioning house that is the house of God. And the third picture that we see, and we'll see that this morning, is that of family. That the church is not just seen as a body. The church is not just seen as a building. And not this building, right? We as the building. But the church is also seen, pictured, reflected as a family. And this is important. This teaches us something. Something should inform the very essence of our interactions with one another. First, it should inform how we treat one another. Secondly, it should inform what we expect from one another. Finally, it should inform how, what we intend toward one another. Now, we're only going to cover these two verses this morning, and then we'll walk into a, a me measure of application. Let's dig in. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, and the younger as sisters with all purity. As Paul writes to Timothy here, he uses language which can only be described as familial. This is family language. And it's interesting, the word here that we find translated entreat is a very common word in our New Testament. But it's a word that has a very rich uh, lineage, a very rich undergirding to it. Generally, we find this word to mean to call near, to implore, to exhort, or, or to comfort. It's, it's a fairly broad range of meanings, which doesn't really help us as much if we just look at the definition. If you just go to your Strong's Concordance and you say, huh, I wonder what that word in, in, uh, entreat means. And so you go and you see that it's parakaleo, and then you, you look at the definition of that, and it says to call near, to implore, to exhort, or to comfort. You say, okay, well, that's interesting. But if you trace that word, it really takes on a unique and important flavor that helps us understand exactly what it is that Paul is calling Timothy to do and how it is that Paul is calling Timothy to interact within the body. So it's helpful at times to go beyond just looking at a definition and to go back to the words, as, we, similar, as we, we sometimes do on Tuesday nights, and figure out where it's used and how it's used to understand the flavor of this word. And so I'd like to give you a brief survey of this word this morning. The word is used 104 times in the New Testament. I told you it's a fairly common word. But we find here that it's used primarily 43 times translated beseech or some manner of beseech. 19 times, some manner of exhort. It might be exhorting, exhortation, but exhort. 13 times, comfort. 6 times, pray. 5 times, desire. 2 times, entreat or entreat. 
as we see it here, and then one time to call. By far the majority of the times the King James translators translated the word, they saw it within the context of asking for something. We see that with beseech, we see that with entreat, we see that with desire, we see that with pray. All of those are this idea of asking for something. But as we walk through the Gospels, we also see it used within this concept of comfort. And there's some real notable uses of this idea of comfort within particularly the gospel. And it's important here to define what comfort means in our King James Bibles before we explore this a little bit more. When we think of the word comfort today, we think of something that is relaxing. If we want to be comfortable, we might uh, go get a fuzzy blanket or get into our pajamas or get into our sweats or uh, go sit on the, the, the comfortable couch, right? The idea of comfort has, has to do with relaxation, with leisure, the warm feeling one might enjoy when one is spoken to, unto softly or blessed in some particular way or, or, or finds uh, some measure of, of uh, familiarity, the comfort of home, right? Uh, you, you go away and when you come back, there's that comfort of being at home. There's that, that comfortableness. But this is not necessarily the, the gloss of comfort as it relates to the Greek or in our King James Bibles. In 1700s English, comfort was a word which meant to strengthen, to invigorate, to cheer, to instill into one, to give into one life or vigor. It would be the idea of I'm having a bad day and someone comes up to comfort me, right? To cheer me up, to uh, uh, lift up my weary hands, to give me a pat on the back and, and, and help me along on my way. That was the, the, the underlying or the deeper idea behind the word comfort. And take note of this definition as we consider some of the places where the Spirit of God uses this word parakaleo within the New Testament. So we see the first use of this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, where Jesus says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So in the Beatitudes, the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 7, forming the foundation of his teaching on kingdom living, right at the outset, Jesus contrasts those who mourn in this life, who live in the spirit of repentance, who suffer the indignity of the cross, and we see that contrasted with those who thus in the kingdom will be comforted. And this is our word, parakaleo. Throughout most of the remainder of the Gospels, we see the word translated beseech. We see it translated as, a, as a, a request or a calling out unto. But there's a notable exception as it relates to this trend in John chapters 14, 15, and 16. And if you're familiar with really John 12 through 17, maybe going back to 10 if you want to stretch it a little bit, if you're familiar with that portion of Scripture, it's some of the most intimate of Jesus' teachings on this earth as it relates to his relationship to his children, to his disciples. And there we see a description of, in its noun form, one who is called the comforter, the paraclete. It's the same words, just in the noun form instead of in the verb form. The comforter. And as Jesus speaks of this one who would come to them, who would be their comforter, he's speaking of none other than the Spirit of God whom he would send after his ascension. 
the ministry of the Spirit of God in the lives of God's people is described as a ministry of comforting and not just the idea of warm fuzzies, not just the idea of a nice pair of slippers that you've had for far many more years than you should have, and they're holy and they're worn down, but you don't want to give them up because they're just so comfortable. It's not just that. It's the idea of exhortation. It's the idea of invigoration. It's the idea of, of instilling in one a, a sense of joy or a sense of, of, of renewal. Notice from John 15, 26, how closely the description of the comforter is linked to this ministry of exhortation. Jesus says in John 14, 26, excuse me, I said 15, 26, it's 14, 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. There is a direct link between calling him the comforter and what Jesus says here he's going to do. He's going to comfort you, not he's going to comfort you and teach you things, but much rather he's going to comfort you by teaching you these things. These things are going to be your comfort. They're going to be what instills in you life. They're going to be the vigor. They're going to be the exhortation. Teaching us all things, bringing to remembrance those things which Christ has said. This in itself uh, is an exhorting function and also to some degree a beseeching function. The Spirit of God will be inside of you calling out to you, beseeching you. And this beseeching function is not only found in God's Spirit, it's called to be found in God's ministers. All throughout the epistles we find Paul beseeching God's people unto obedience, unto purity, unto love. And it's this same Word. It's the same idea. So we find in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He is comforting them with these words. He's exhorting them with these words. He's calling them unto action with these words. I beseech you. I call you unto action. I seek for your comfort. I seek to exhort you. I seek to instill in you life and vigor present your bodies a living sacrifice to the Lord. This is not only, however, something for ministers. It's a function of the body one toward another as well. We find it to be a part of the teaching and testimony ministry of the church, one toward another. A while ago, we considered in 1 Corinthians 14 that those in the body would prophesy one to another. When we talked about what that meant, we talked about how prophecy there was a, a foretelling, not a foretelling, an exhortation one to another, a calling one another unto obedience and unto an understanding of the word of the Lord. And within this context, we find that the body itself is called to beseech, to exhort, to comfort one another. So 1 Corinthians 14, verses 29 to 31, the Bible says this, let the prophets speak two or three and let the other judge, right? So there are men who are speaking forth the word of God and everyone else is listening and judging. They're judging, not judging them, but they're judging the words that they say. They're judging their doctrinal clarity. They're judging their accuracy. They're judging their alignment with sound doctrine. Verse 30, if anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, here it is, and all may be comforted. 
there's an opportunity and a call that God's people would take opportunities. Now, we often do this within our church in, in our testimony times, in our Sunday school times, in our Tuesday night times, the times where there's interaction. And if I'm saying something and the Lord brings something to mind, well, then the first can hold his peace and someone else can speak. And there can be a mutual edification. There can be a mutual comfort, a mutual exhortation, a mutual beseeching, a mu- mutual encouragement or imploring one of another. So this is what God calls us to do. God, as God enlivens us and he invigorates us and compels us through the knowledge of him, it's our privilege to share those lessons and not just to share them corporately, but to share them individually. So we find in 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 and 4, blessed be God, Paul says, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who here it is, comforteth us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. This is that same word. God brings us through times of comforting, times of invigoration, times of, uh, of exhortation, times of beseeching, times of trial. God brings us through these things and then we have the opportunity to share those things one with another. We have an opportunity to reflect those into the lives of one another. We have an opportunity to draw nigh one to another and to become better by that which each joint supplies. Sounds a lot like a family, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like how a family operates. And so we invest in one another. We exhort one another. We encourage one another. We comfort one another. Naturally, we could go on showing examples of how this word is used. There are 104 of them, right? But lest we stray too far from this idea of entreaty, we see Paul speak toward his beseeching of the Lord for mercy and grace. This is a clear beseeching context. Recall in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And he describes his interaction with the Lord in this regard. The Bible says in verses 7 and 8 of 2 Corinthians 12, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought, there's that our word, the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. This is a, a very clear idea of beseeching, of asking, of seeking unto the Lord, uh, a very clear idea of imploring. No nuance to the use of the word here. Paul is not teaching the word or, or the Lord or necessarily exhorting the Lord. He's asking the Lord for mercy. And so if we were to trace the common thread surrounding this word, it would really be that, that first definition, that idea of calling near that we see. Personal engagement, whether that be personal engagement to ask or personal engagement to tell, personal engagement to lift up or personal engagement to receive, Personal engagement is the essence of this word. Calling ourselves near one to another. Call, drawing near to the Lord. The Lord drawing near to us through His Spirit. Drawing near one to another. That's the idea. Now carry this into our text. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him. Call him near. Beseech him. Implore him. Exhort him. Invigorate him. We only see the word entreat once, but we find it modifies each phrase in the sentence. Entreat elder men as fathers. Entreat younger men as brothers. 
entreat elder women as mothers, entreat younger women as sisters. Think through this with me on any number of levels. First, take note, first of all, we need to be clear with the text, Paul is telling this to Timothy. He's not, this, this is not, the, the, the verb here, entreat, is not a plural, it's a singular. He's speaking to Timothy, specifically. So, within the direct context, this is Paul telling Timothy as a minister to treat the men and women in the church this way, to speak carefully, to, to uh, guard his interactions, to make sure those interactions are appropriate, that they're pure. But if we continue in the context, we're going to find that Paul very quickly broadens it to well beyond just Timothy as he starts talking about widows and how the church should treat widows and dealing with widows indeed, which is a subset of, of the elements that Paul is speaking of here. I don't believe thus it would be wrong for us that it would do any disservice to the context or to the meaning of the text to recognize that this is not just a responsibility of Timothy, but it's a responsibility of Timothy as an example to the church so that the church would do the same. So as Timothy is called to be an example of the believer, as Timothy is called to interact on, on that, that level of reflecting what Christ would have for the, for the people of God to be by living it, we see this exhortation that Timothy be an example of this virtue that ought to be cultivated within them. And within that line of thinking, we find here a responsibility within the church that we need to interact with one another as family. That those who come here and invest in the church, which, by the way, is not everyone in any church, right? The nature of at least the church model that is most common within the United States today, even our uncommon application of the common church model is that we're a public-facing ministry, which means not everyone who comes to our church is invested in our church, right? But once you come and you invest, those who invest in the church ought to experience within the context of that investment a familial atmosphere. It ought to feel like family. It ought to act like family. Now, when I say that, some of you might have horror in your mind. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But what I mean by this is a place where there's love and there's trust and there's sacrifice and there's consideration, what family ought to be. Spending time, expending emotional energy, investing one in another, caring one for another, putting ourselves out one for another. And again, when, when I say that, I've become very sensitive to this because of my time working with people in the jail. When you say God loves you as a father, you've got to be really careful how you define that when you're dealing with people in a jail setting. We, we dare not take for granted that a person can relate to the idea of God as a, as a loving father or as family as something good. Some of you may not have experienced family as something good growing up. Some of you may not have experienced family as a place of love, comfort, peace, accountability, uh, friendships. I was looking the other day at some posts uh, from one of my friends on social media, um, and they had shown a picture of their family, and they had said that this was their happy place uh, when they were home with family. And maybe you've not been able to experience that, but that's the idea here, 
where everyone understands one another, not even just understands what to expect, but even understands your quirks, right? All of those little nuances and intricacies that make you you and, and uh, sister and brother may not get along on a certain level, but they love each other and they understand the friction that they have simply because of different personalities, right? And so they've got those quirks and they've got those differences and you love them all the more for it, even though you don't always like them for it, right? person may roll their eyes at you, but you know that you're still part of that family and that when push comes to shove, they're there. That's sort of an idea. Others, you may not understand that by experience, but that's kind of one of the blessings of the church is that when Jesus says that no man has left father and mother or sister or brother or houses or lands for my sake in the gospels who will not receive 100-fold in this time and in the world to come eternal life. A part of that 100-fold idea is that when you enter the family of God, you enter a family. And that's God's intent. The church should function in part in a manner of speaking, like a family, a place where, where, where there are elder men and elder women who can be looked up to, who can be followed in the vein of Titus chapter 2, men and women who are stable, who are seeking to teach the next generation, who uh, are going to be the anchor for that church and who, who are going to allow that church to have a measure of stability in itself because they have these men and these women who, have ex- who are experienced and godly, who are, who are leading and, and who are caring, watching out for the best interests of those who are younger than they. And then you have the young men and the young women and they're passionate, and they're growing, and they have life, and they have energy, and they have vibrancy, and they have, they have ideals. And uh, this is what keeps the, the church fresh, and this is what, what, what keeps the church motivated, and this is where the energy is found. And when it, when it comes together, it, it finds harmony. And there can be a measure of vulnerability one with another because we trust one another where we can meet each other's spiritual needs, where we can meet each other's physical needs, where we're mutually investing one in another, where we're seeing the problems one in another, and we're not just saying, wow, I hope they get them figured out, but you say, how can I help them figure that out? How can I help them grow? How can I help them get better? It's not a place where we gussy ourselves up and we sanitize our lives and we present a false face among those with whom we're around. It's a place where we can be ourselves, flaws and all, not to glory in our flaws, as many churches have come to do today, but still to be willing to express them and expect those around us, they're not going to confirm our flaws, but help us through our flaws. It's not a place where we go to cheat or to gossip or to deceive or to defraud or to flirt. It's not a place of cliques or of factions or of ulterior motives. If you want those, there are a hundred places you can find those in the world. The church is the family of God. The church investment is into the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is rooted in the people of God. And if you want to invest in the kingdom, the best way to do it is to invest in one another. And so we have this exhortation 
that God's people would meet together and entreat one another, exhort one another, comfort one another, enliven one another, invigorate one another, encourage one another. You don't rebuke an elder, you treat him as a father. You treat the elder women as mothers. You treat the younger men as brothers, and you treat the younger women as sisters in all purity, all purity, in a pure way, in a right way, in a, 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 a sinlessness of life, that we don't see each other as the world sees one another, that we're not constantly looking over our shoulder, that we're not deceiving, that we're not constantly looking for how to one-up the other person. That's not a functional family. And that leads us to our application this morning. Families, invest in one another, help one another, serve one another, are honest with one another, are vulnerable one to another. Again, I recognize that not everyone under the sound of my voice experienced this in the way you grew up, in your family. Uh, There are those among us who uh, grew up with a single-parent home or grew up with uh, a single or multiple parents who were angry, who were abusive, uh, who were negligent, uh, parents who did not um, seek to guide, did not ever become an ear to, to listen, uh, was not a, a stable source of um, encouragement or, or a stable source of example. Uh, you would say, no, I don't want to be like my father, or I don't want to be like my mother. As a matter of fact, they are the thing that I have learned not to be, right? They are, they are exactly what I, I don't want to be. Uh, th- there are any number of familial situations I know that you all have experienced, and I'm, I-, I want you to be careful here. When we say the church is like family, don't, si- don't think the church is like my family, the church is like the family that God, the family as God has ordained family. The church is like family as God has ordained it, just like God is a father as God has ordained fathers. Not an abusive man, not an angry man, not a negligent man, not a man you need to go hide from when he gets into a bad mood, but as a loving father who disciplines his children, who provides for his children, who loves his children, who desires to give good things into his children, who will raise up and nurture his children, who will provide for his children. That's the kind of father God is. That's the kind of father we see in the word of God. So when I say that the church is a family of God, and when we talk about families, this is what we're talking about. So let's lay that definition out. Families, this is what a family is supposed to be. Family is a place of trust. It's a place of investment. It's a place of help. It's a place of safety. It's a place where you can be honest with one another with confidence, knowing that they're not going to use your vulnerabilities as a club to beat you with, but rather they are going to guard your vulnerabilities and help you through them. That's family. Family is a place where you can expose those things because you can get help before you go out into the world where the wolves are that are just looking to tear you up if they can find just one chink of your armor. That's family. Now, if you've not experienced that physically, I'm, I'm sorry. If you, are, if you have a family or you're looking to build a family, that is family. That's the environment you want in your household. 
but we establish this baseline of family simply so that we can really get to the second point. If that idea of family isn't church to you, then you're missing out on church. And I'm not blaming you. It may be that your church is the reason why you're missing out on church. But there's something wrong in our church if that's not our church. And as I seek to be honest with us this morning, this is the part of our church that needs help, that needs work. Becoming more of this. By God's grace, we've got a great doctrinal statement. I work hard to make sure our teaching is, is, is sound, it feeds you, that you grow. But as we feel out, particularly this manner of church that we do, non-segregated church, and as we work on how that happens when we don't have programs and we don't have these things, personal interaction becomes a little bit more difficult, a little bit more of an investment. You have to think about it a little bit more because it's not just going to be laid out on the calendar every month for you in so many ways. So it takes that extra layer of investment, and that is by design, but that means we have to be uh, diligent. That means we have to go out of our way to make sure that church is for us what church needs to be. That church is a family. And again, as I speak to this, I'm speaking about those who have invested, and that'll that'll be a later point. Not everyone here wants to invest in this family. You want to come, you want to listen, you want to get the, 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 the scriptures, and then you want to leave, and you don't want to invest. And there's, there, there's nothing that the church can do to help you become more involved if, if you're not willing. You, this is a choice. There's a part of it that is the church, as we, God's people, structure ourselves in such a way to be accountable one to another, to love one another, to invest in one another. And then there's a part that's you, which says, look, if you're not here, you're not going to be a part of the investment. And so let's go through these ideas in our closing moments. If this isn't church to you, you're missing out on church. What, what can you do? Number one, invest or start investing in one another. Invest in one another. Help one another. Encourage one another. Communicate with one another. Spend time together. Invest. Enfold into one another. Be together. Be with one another. Now, we we actually do pretty well at this when we talk about the core. It's not uncommon for our church to be here for an hour and a half to two hours after any given service investing in one another. But don't just let it be on Sunday. Don't just let it be on Tuesday. If, if someone in our church needs help, we ought to be there. Looking for ways that we can help. Looking for ways we can invest. Looking for ways we can encourage. You shouldn't have to feel alone when you're a part of a functioning local church. You shouldn't have to feel like you're an island on yourself. All, all by yourself. You shouldn't have to feel like there's no one to help you when you have a need. Our, our, our family should not have to feel like there's no one to watch their kids if mom and dad want to go out for a night unless everyone's busy. They shouldn't have to feel like they can never ask or expect someone to invest in them. 
because that's what families do. They invest in one another. They put themselves out for one another. They set aside even what they may have to do or what they may want to do in order to do what their family needs. There's an interesting balance in family. On one side of the equation, you have abject individualism that we see in our society, libertinism, the idea that the individual is king, and the individual being king leads to what we see before Noah's flood, that every man does what is right in their own eyes, because the individual is all that matters. And then on the other side, you have this communitarianism, where, where the community is the only thing that matters. And the individual doesn't matter at all, only community. And that's where you get the Tower of Babel on the other side of the flood. That who cares what you think, who cares about you, it's only about us. The family strikes this beautiful balance in the middle where the family recognizes the future in the community while simultaneously recognizing each individual and their needs for them individually to thrive. We don't set aside the individual needs of of each person for the whole or for the future exclusively. But we also don't set aside the future or the needs of the, the whole for each individual. There's a balance, and that's what family is intended to be. We are living now, but we are building the future. Literally, our children are the future. We are investing into the future every day with our children while simultaneously we are, we are living for each one of them and helping each one of them thrive individually. That's the church. The church is that balance. We see the next generation and we are investing in that next generation and we are setting aside some of our own individual quirks, some of our own individual problems, some of our own individual uh, ideas in order that, that, that the body might be best served. But simultaneously, the body exists so that each one of us might be individually strong. Just like the human body, each individual bit helps the whole and the whole's health helps each individual bit. So invest. Invest in one another. Second, stop being so private. I want to be careful with this point. Um, We are private people. Number one, Minnesotans are private people, very private people, especially when it talks about religion. You go try to talk about someone about their religion, they say they get offended just because you're talking to them about religion. That's private, right? You don't talk about religion. Private thing. Minnesotans are private people, culturally. The Western world has become very private in a sense. Uh, Not private in that everybody, every little thing that goes, that, that enters the person's mind ends up being broadcast to the world on Facebook. So not private in that sense. But private in the sense that while you will tell people what you had for lunch on Facebook, you don't want someone standing at your door. A people that want to be left alone, and then they'll go put their whole lives on Facebook, but they want to be left alone. Community is dying in our culture. Neighborhoods are dying. There's no really such thing. People don't know their neighbors. People aren't engaged in their communities. People don't have friends outside of a digital forum. That's all going away. And and, and that that needs to go away. 
we're going to see in a couple of weeks a call uh, for Paul for, for, um, for widows who are under the age of 60 to, to marry again lest they become idle and they become tattlers and busybodies. There's a lot of exhortations in the scriptures that we not get into other people's business where we're not concerned. But just because we're called not to get into other people's businesses does not mean that we should not get into their lives. The church has become unfortunately private, particularly as it relates to our vulnerabilities and our downfalls, our failings. There are people in this room that are struggling with sin. And you've been struggling with sin for a long time and you're not winning. You're not winning out. And, and nobody knows. And you come to church and you put on that smiling face. And people ask you how you're doing and you say, great. And it's time to answer the questions in Sunday school and you know the answers. And people say, hey, you know, what do you think of this? And you give that godly, wise answer and yet you are struggling on the inside and you won't tell anyone. And you won't get help. And unfortunately, usually it comes to a head because you get caught. Or it comes out into the open when it's time for the divorce. Or when it's time for, uh, for there to be some physical manifestation. When it's time for the bankruptcy. Or whatever the case may be. And it's because you never trusted anybody enough to open up and to say, I need help. Now, Historically, the church has been a judgmental place. People know of your sin. They literally use it as a club to beat you with. But that's not supposed to be the church. I desperately desire that my children would not be so afraid of getting consequences for a wrong action that they would endure a sinful habit in secret. I desperately desire that my children would not live with such a fear, what are mom and dad going to think, that, they never, that it would never cross their mind. Mom and dad love me so much that if I tell them I'm struggling with sin, they are, they are the ones that can help me. They are the ones that can help me through this. They are spiritually mature. That's how a family is supposed to look. Where my children come to me and say, I'm really struggling with a sin, and I look at them and I say, thank you for telling me let me help you. Let's open the word of God. Let's walk you through it. Let's hold you accountable. Let's put you into a place where you can be successful because it's going to be a whole lot easier for them to overcome sin at age six or age 12 or age 16 than it will be when they have a family and they have a job and they have positions of leadership and they've got things that have to be done. But look, if you're there, the church is the place to get that solved. It's not the place to beat you over the head with it. That's what the church is supposed to look like, at least. The church is supposed to be a place where you can have a circle. Now, again, we're a public-facing ministry. For you to stand up on a Sunday morning and to air your dirty laundry is not a good idea. Because there's going to be guests here. There's going to be people here that don't have your best interest in mind or don't care. But when it comes to the core, the investment, those who have invested... When it comes to that group of men who you can look at and say, men, I need help. I'm struggling. I need accountability. I'm struggling. I need prayer. I'm struggling. And I'm willing to make myself vulnerable. Maybe it's not a big thing. Maybe it's not a life-changing thing. I, 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 I went and I did this this week. And you know what? I'm really trying not to. 
I'm trying to get, I'm trying to stop listening to that music. I'm trying to stop watching that. I'm trying to stop. I have this, I have this tendency to lie or I have this tendency to, to when I get backed into a corner to do this. I have a tendency to break the law when it doesn't matter. I have a tendency to do this. You know what? I want to stop. Men, help me. And the men can come alongside of you and say, yes, this is what the word of God says. This is how we can help you. They can send you a text in the morning and say, hey, brother, I'm praying for you. And you can know that you have someone praying for you that day. But you know what? That's not fun because we're a private people. We're a sanitized church. We don't want people to know our flaws. We go, we go out of our way for people not to know our flaws. The people that are supposed to be closest to us, this is the group that we don't want to know. Our neighbors know. Our neighbors know all about our anger problem, but not our church. should be the other way around. Your church ought to know so that your, your, your anger problem goes away and then your neighbors don't have to see it. And this is where, this is the spirit of this exhortation. Stop being so private. I'm not saying get into everyone else's business. I'm not saying meddle in other people's affairs. But what I am saying is, if, you, if, if we're to be a family, then we need to act like it. And granted, there are those that are listening saying, Pastor, I'm not up for that. Okay, well then this is not the body for you. Because this is what we ought to be. There's a lot of churches where you can go and you can sit in the back and be anonymous. And you can even do that here. But the investment, the core, needs to look like this. Finally, what you put in is what you will get out from the Lord. If you want, if you want the church to invest in you, you have to invest in it. It's always disappointing to me when someone leaves the church and they say, well, I just wasn't getting what I needed because you don't have this, you don't have that. And it will come to my mind that they didn't come to Sunday school and they didn't come to Sunday night and they didn't come to Tuesday night. And they, they weren't regularly at fellowships or maybe they were, but they didn't stay long. Or maybe they were at those, but they didn't invest. There are four opportunities where I teach every week. And a lot of the fellowship and growth that our church has relationally happens after Sunday night. After Tuesday night, if you're missing Sunday night and Tuesday night, or if you're jumping right out the door as soon as I say amen, you're missing out on church. This is a part of church that I teach and that we pray together and that we, we, we talk through, through our, our, our prayer requests and that we uh, partake in the Lord's table together. But if you, if you run right out the door, now there are times where you need to, right? There's something in the oven or whatever the case may be. But if that's your habit, if you're not here, if you're not talking, if you're not fellowshipping, you're missing out on church. Even if we don't spend every other night together, even if we don't have Friday night fellowships, Saturday night fellowships, there's a lot of fellowship that goes on here Sunday nights and Tuesday nights. Not always so much after Sunday morning. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Dinner on the grounds, it's, it's there. Sometimes before Sunday school, people are really fellowshipy. It's wonderful. 
But from observation, after Sunday night, after Tuesday night, there's a lot of fellowship there. If you're missing out on that, you're missing out on church. Now, maybe it would be nice if, to have that same thing in a forum where kids aren't pumpkining and, and, and it's not going to be a miserable Monday morning because the kids got to bed so late. We can work on that. But is your mindset there? You're going to get out from this body what you put into this body. Don't complain if you're not here is really the idea. And so the church is intended to be a family. That we're to not rebuke elders, but exhort them as fathers and the elder women as mothers and the younger men as brothers and the younger women as sisters with all purity. And we're to grow in our relationship one with another and we're to help one another. And, and we, we ought to be able to come into these doors and to meet together and find in that fellowship and safety and, and love one with another. And if that's not church, whether that's on, on the end of, of, of the fellowship as a whole or whether that's on your end, if that's not church to you, if that's not church to us, then we are missing out on church. God help us to look this way. God help us to be this way. There are parts, as I've talked with many of you men, you know, there are parts of this that that have, have faltered over the last little while in our church and that we are reinitiating, reinvigorating. And I hope that that's what this sermon will be to us this morning. It'll be a reinvigoration of our determination to invest in one another, to love one another, to, to spend time with one another, to be the family of God, one with another. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.